You ever heard this statement? Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. It's originally attributed to an author by the name of John Edward Acton. And this is the original quote. It says, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Now listen to this statement. Great men are almost always bad men. Great men are almost always bad men. It's certainly a plague, isn't it, right now? We look around the world. We look at leaderships of all different stripes and colors, and we see that that the leaders of those various entities are almost always, if they're powerful men, they're not good men. And if they're good men, they're not powerful men. And it highlights something for us, that there is something about this statement that is true, that Acton's words seem to be correct. That is, if you are great or powerful, then you are not likely to be good. Or if we put it another way, we might say that if you are king, you are not likely to be priest. And if you're priest, you're not likely to be king. If you are powerful enough as king, you will not be fit to be God's go-between between the world and himself. This is highlighted in the story of, of Uzziah in the Old Testament. In 2 Chronicles chapter 26, Uzziah is the king of God, and he's a righteous king, a good king for many years in, in the nation of Judah. And sure enough, as, as, as he uh, kind of has a good kingdom going, a good thing going, uh, 2 Chronicles verse 26 says, or chapter 26, verse 16 says that when Uzziah was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. And this is what happens in the story that follows. Uzziah grows proud, and so he comes into the temple of God, and he wants to burn incense in the temple of God, only a thing for priests to do. Uzziah wants to become the priest king. He wants to become both priest and king and fulfill both of those offices. And what happens as the priests warn Uzziah not to do this, Uzziah offers the incense and he starts to break out in leprosy across his body. It plagues him for the rest of his life so that he has to withdraw from public life even while he leads the nation of Judah. See, the priest-king experiment had failed in the life of Uzziah. It's my desire this morning to show the necessity of the priest-king this morning, though. It's our desire to see the true priest-king, Jesus Christ, that God has issued forth onto the scene, that we could see Jesus as both good priest who leads us to God and high king of heaven who uniquely leads and rules over his people. See, we want to show this morning that our only hope is in the one who would exist both as reigning king and merciful priest. And that introduction to this priest king is God's true blessing for us this morning. So here's our big idea as we dig into Genesis 13 and 14. When the creator God promises blessing, his blessing is all we need. When God brings his blessing, as he introduces us into his priest king, it's the only thing that we should need or desire. We're going to see this in three different phases in the life of 
Abram. In, verse, in chapter 13, we're going to see that we don't have to be self-asserting because of God's promise. And we're going to follow on the heels of that, and we've got to say that we don't have to be self-preserving because of God's promise. And then finally, in chapter 14, verses 17 through 24, we're going to see that we wait for God's benefit because of his promise. We wait for that true priest king to come and reign among us. I want to dig in this morning, but first I want to pray. We have a lot ahead of us. We have a lot of text to cover, and I want to pray that God just opens our hearts and our minds. Pray with me. Lord, we ask now that you would allow us to hear your words, to ascertain their meaning, and to come in faith before you, to honor the intention of of what you show us in this passage. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. See, the first thing we see is that we don't have to be self-asserting because God has given us his promises. And so what happens in chapter 13 is that Abram is returning from Egypt. Remember last week we looked at the story of how Abram and Sarai went to Egypt and and Abram lies about who his wife is and now he's returning from Egypt. And we highlight in verse 3 and 4, look at what it says here in Genesis 13, verses 3 and 4. And he journeyed, that's Abram journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai to the place where he had made an altar at the first and there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. So what's happening is Abram's returning to this place between Bethel and Ai where he first heard the promise from God back in Genesis chapter 12 verse 7 and now he's returning to that place. And what happens next is that uh, Abram and Lot have to have a really honest discussion because there's so much abundance for both of these men that they cannot coexist. So in verse 6 it says this, the land could not support both Abram and Lot dwelling together for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together and there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's flock and the herdsmen herdsmen of Lot's flock, excuse me. See, they've got too many animals, they've got too many servants in too small of a place. And so Abram offers a solution starting in verse 8. Abram said to Lot, there shall be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. See, this is utter confidence on Abram's part, isn't it? He has utter confidence in the promise of God so that he can be deferring to Lot, that he can say, Lot, you choose what you want and God will bless me in the rest. Uh, You choose what you desire and God will bless whatever I am left with. And so what happens is Lot chooses in verses 10 through 13. Look at verse 10. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zor. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Now notice the first thing that Lot does. Lot looks with his eyes and he sees this 
lush Jordan Valley, right? He sees it as, as something that is just overflowing and abundant. Meanwhile, he looks in the opposite direction and a tumbleweed rolls by, right? See, Lot is seeing this picture of abundance and he looks with his eyes. But there's something that remains hidden to his sight that he can't see from this distance. And it's described for us in verse 13. The men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners before the Lord. See, Lot looks and assesses with his eyes, doesn't he? In his book, uh, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, Thomas Brooks, he, he notes that Satan likes to bait the hook and he hides the hook within the bait, right? And so we see the bait, but we don't necessarily see the hook. And Lot sees the bait of this lush Jordan Valley, but he does not see the hook that lies inside. And so what he goes on and he moves towards Sodom and he doesn't realize that this choice will eventually cost him his life and in some way, a compromise of his integrity. Look what happens in verses 14 through 18. Is that God invites Abram to explore his blessing. Verse 14, the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward, eastward and westward, for all the land that you will see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if, no, if one had count, excuse me, so that if one count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. So God also calls Abram to lift up his eyes. Lot looks out with his eyes and makes a self-assessment, but God calls Abram to look with his eyes, and he does this, and then God invites him to investigate his promise, right? He invites Abram to go and search out all the nooks and crannies of this land that he has promised to him. See, what God has promised in token, God invites Abram into an experience what, what he knows he doesn't own yet, but will own someday, God invites him to experience it here and now. See, what all of this kind of culminates to is that the gospel means that we don't have to be self-assertive. When we receive the promises of God, we don't have to assert ourselves. And what's interesting here is that Abram is going to really struggle with this issue of being self-assertive, with making his own plans. Like the Proverbs say, you know, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but the Lord, uh, his purpose shall stand. And Abram is, is going to sleep with his, his wife's concubine or his wife's uh, servant, Hagar, and create an heir with her. And it's going to be a thorn in his side for remaining chapters. Abram is going to struggle with this self-assertion, but here he does well. He doesn't assert himself over his nephew, Lot. Abram doesn't need to procure God's blessing by jumping to the front of the line. God's blessing will come in its fullness at its appointed time. And even today, we don't have to push for our blessing. We don't have to assert our desire. In fact, the Bible uses words like wait or patience to describe the, the way that we engage our world. 
We're to be people who wait for the promises of God. We're to be people who have patience until the day of the Lord. And so you and I live in this same already not yet tension that Abram's life is, is going through. But Abram's life is about to be brought into a different arena where he's lived kind of primarily in, in this very kind of cloistered, uh, sequestered family life. He's brought, about to be brought into a very public place. And what happens in verses 1 through 16, well, verses, chapter 13 shows us that we don't have to be self-asserting. In chapter 14, we see we don't have to be self-preserving either. And Abram's about to willingly offer himself up, put himself at harm's way uh, for the sake of Lot. Let's look at chapter 14. In verses 1 through 12, there's a battle that's described. It, it seems that there's these two uh, factions that start up. There's Chedo, Cheddar Laomer, there's a name, right? And Cheddar Laomer is a strong king in this area. And he has this coalition of other kings that are with him. And when he starts to kind of uh, press against some neighboring cities, a coalition of four or five other kings, including the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah, kind of come out to meet him in battle. And sure enough, Cheddar Laomer and all of his friends kind of uh, defeat the kings of, of, of Sodom and Gomorrah and all of these other places and they start going throughout all of the cities and collecting all of the spoil from all, all of these cities. And what the upshot of all of this is that in verse 12, Lot is taken captive because Lot is dwelling in Sodom and Cheddar Laomer has defeated the king of Sodom and now is just pillaging all of these cities. And so he takes Lot captive. Now we pick up in verses 13 through 16 and we see that Abram gathers his forces together, all of his people, all of his servants, and he goes and rescues Lot. Look at verse 14 with me. When Abram heard that his kinsman Lot had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. See, what happens is Abram becomes this public warrior, right? He's like William Wallace riding into battle. And he uh, splits his forces and he attacks by cover of night. And it's kind of, it just reads like the script of an action movie, right? It, uh, Abram is leading this coalition of 318 men against a much larger army and he defeats them with God's help. But remember, let's kind of read the details underneath all of this. We might miss that Abram chooses to go to battle when he has no obligation to do so. Remember, Lot separated from him. Lot left his household. Lot went and established his own household. He made his decision. Abram could have very, looked, very well looked at him and said, how well does that land look now? Uh, how good does the Jordan Valley look to you now, Lot? Instead, Abram joins the fray. And further, notice the specific number of verse 14, right? 318 servants leave Abram's household to go and hunt down Lot in the midst of this army. Couldn't it have been 317 and Abraham stayed home and sipped a coffee or whatever? 
Uh, Abram didn't have to go with them. He chose to become a part of this entourage, and it's his presence that brings about the blessing of a victory. See, the gospel allows us to not be self-preserving. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus mean that I, too, will be resurrected into new living at Jesus' return. That even if my life is taken from me, my eternity is, is secure. That I don't have to worry about the losses that I might face because I have eternity secure in Christ. There's a story of, of a missionary named Adoniram Judson. And he wrote a letter to his future father-in-law um, requesting that his father-in-law consider uh, just the weight of, of being married to a missionary. And he, he writes this. He says, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring, to see her no more in this world, whether you can consent to her departure to a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God? Can you consent to all this and hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamations of praise which shall surround to her, resound to her Savior from heathen saved through her means? from eternal woe and despair. See, because Jesus has given himself, we also can be self-giving. Our future resurrection is as sure as Christ's resurrection has already happened. Our future resurrection is as sure as Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of God even now. So we see that we don't have to be self-asserting and we don't have to be self-preserving Instead, we can bank on the promises of God, which is what we see happen in the life of Abraham in verses 17 through 24. See, we wait for God's benefit because of his promise. We wait for his blessing because of his promise. Look at verses 17 through 24 in chapter 14 with me. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet Abram at the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham, or Abram, by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner and Eshkol and Mamre take their share. 
See, what we see is that Abram is returning from war and he's got all of these spoils of victory. Imagine as Cheddar Laomer has just pillaged all of these towns and villages, there's just this treasure that he is taking with him. And, and as Abram returns, two kings come out to meet him. Not three, not one, two. And we want to highlight this because it presents to us two very different options as we go forth. First, Melchizedek gives blessing, bread, and wine. We might stop and say, who is Melchizedek and why does he have such a funny name? See, from this passage, we, we realize a couple things about him, right? First, he's described as king of Salem. Uh, Salem means peace, and it's probably a, a, a early description of the city of Jerusalem. Salem was Jerusalem. And so this Melchizedek is coming from Jerusalem, bringing his blessing. But he's not just a king, he's also a priest. Uh, he's the priest of God, as verse 18 says, meaning he worships the same God as Abram. And so Melchizedek is the priest king. Melchizedek operates as one who rules over Jerusalem or Salem, and he also is the priest of God. Now, if we go through the rest of the scriptures, we kind of pull out some more things about who Melchizedek is. If we dig a bit deeper, we might find out more. His name means king of righteousness. That's the combination of Melech, uh, Melchizedek. Melech means king and, and Zedek means righteousness. So he is king of righteousness according to Hebrews chapter 7 verse 2. He's the only character in Genesis thus far that we, we don't know where he came from and we don't know where he goes. He's Cotton Eye Joe, right? Where did you come from? Where did you go? Yeah, okay, that was awful. But anyway, he, he has no genealogy or lineage listed for us. It's rare in the book of Genesis that we see any character that has no lineage given for us. And the author of Hebrews picks up on this in Hebrews chapter 7 and says that he's almost eternal in that way. And that's uh, kind of uh, not true. We, we think he's a, a real man. He just doesn't have his genealogy listed for us. Melchizedek then is a type of Christ. He's a literal person who lived at a literal time. He's not just a pre-incarnate person of Christ. He's a type that will show us characteristics that are eventually going to be true of Jesus. So we, what this means is that the, the characteristics that we've just highlighted about Melchizedek as this mysterious priest king will highlight the characteristics that are ultimately true of Jesus Christ. Jesus will also be the priest king. Jesus will also live without beginning and without end. Jesus will also be the king of righteousness and the king of peace. But he will be all of those things, not merely with an earthly tabernacle, but he will intercede with, uh, for us in the heavenly tabernacle. He will be the priest king who actually intercedes before the Lord God in his presence. And it's this Melchizedek who brings Abram blessing, bread, and wine. It's an offering of, of celebration. And Abram, in honor of Melchizedek's God, pays 10% in service to him. He takes all of this abundance and he gives 10% of it off to Melchizedek. Remember, it shows that as Melchizedek blesses Abram, Abram blesses Melchizedek. It's a uh, bringing to bear of the promise of God in, in Genesis 12, 3, that those who bless you, I will bless. God's 
blessing Melchizedek as he blesses Abram. But in contrast, in verses 21 through 24, we see that there's this other character there. The king of Sodom is also there. It's not just Abram and Melchizedek hanging out. There's this other guy just kind of hanging around. Uh, the king of Sodom shows up. And in contrast, the king of Sodom acts very differently than Melchizedek. While it might look that this is like a, a good gesture from the king of Sodom, it's somewhat seditious and somewhat underhanded of the, the king of Sodom to do what he does. First, notice his words in verse 21 to Abram. He says this, he says, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. It's short and terse and abrupt. There's no thankfulness, there's no greeting, there's no uh, blessing as Melchizedek had given Second, the king of Sodom may have hidden a desire to be Abram's benefactor. We see this as, as Abram responds in verses 22 and 23. Look at his response. He said, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram Rich. See, Abram foregoes the riches of the king of Sodom in order to remain true to the promise of the creator God. And now notice in this section that the, the blessing that uh, Melchizedek gives is that God is the possessor of heaven and earth is what Abram repeats in his words to the king of Sodom. He says it in verse 22, the Lord God, most high possessor of heaven and earth. The truth is that Abram doesn't need the blessing of the king of Sodom because he serves the possessor of heaven and earth. He doesn't need these riches. He doesn't need all of these things because God is possessor of all things. We might step back and we might say, this is quite the story. There's a lot to be stated here. But it reminds us this morning that we all need the blessing that God brings through his true priest king, Jesus Christ. See, even today, there's priests and there's kings. You might substitute kings with politicians, presidents, whatever else it might be. Priests act as go-betweens for us. They stand between God and man, giving the words of God to men and making sacrifice on behalf of men to God. That's their job, is they act as these in-betweens between uh, the seat of heaven and the footstool of earth. And they speak to God on our behalf, and they speak to us on behalf of God. Kings, on the other hand, they, they rule over men. They, they set up rules for people. They, established, they are established by God. God directs them, as we look through the course of the scripture, but they rule over people, and they answer to God for the ways that they rule over us. It's evident in the way that David leads. There's uh, lots of passages that show that David is accountable to God for how he leads men. But the truth is this morning that there's no priest kings on the earth today. Imagine what that would be like for just a second. Just think for a second. What would it be like to have a leader who had so much power and authority, but was also good and loving and could stand before God without shame? What would that be like? What would it be like for us to have a true priest king, a ruler who was righteous, who communed with God, and also led with power and authority? What would 
that be like? See, Jesus wants to be the true priest king. You know, years later, after this was done, another king would come into the city of Jerusalem. The first Jew to lead and rule from the city of Jerusalem was David. And David would come to the throne of God, or to the throne, and he would become king, but he would never act as priest. But he wrote a psalm in Psalm 110, and he highlights someone who was coming who would be both king and priest. And if we look at Psalm 110, we're going to see that David highlights that exact nature. Jesus was the true king. This is what David wrote about that coming king, Jesus. The Lord says to my Lord, that is God the Father says to my Lord, that's Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. He says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. God was going to send out the rule and reign of Jesus. He was going to rule with authority. That he was going to make his enemies a footstool for his feet, as 1 Corinthians 15 quotes. So Jesus was to be the true king, but he was also to be the true priest. Later on in Psalm 110, verse 4, uh, the psalmist David writes this. He says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of who? Of Melchizedek. You are the true priest king. You are the one who rules and is righteous. You are the one who deserves all honor and praise. Jesus wasn't just another king or another priest, though, was he? Jesus was king of kings. He was the ruler of all rulers. Listen to what Colossians 1 says. By him, that's by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Jesus rules as king of kings. There is no ruler above him, and he has created all kings for his purpose. All things are through him and for him. He is ruler of all rulers. But not just that, he is the high priest in the heavenly realms. In Hebrews chapter 9, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. See, Jesus is the good king, but he's the perfect high priest. He brings both of those things so that our priest king, Jesus, is the means by which the promises of God are brought to us. It's in Christ that the promises made to Abraham are made real. He is the reason that Abraham was a blessing to all of the nations. And it's in Christ that the promises of the gospel come true for us. It's only in Christ that our sins are forgiven. It's only in Christ that we have eternal life. It's only in Christ that we are restored to right relationship with the Father. All of God's blessing comes through the priest king, Jesus. And so this morning, as we see this type of Melchizedek, we just thirst for something more, don't we? We just thirst for something greater 
for that time when Jesus will establish his rule and his reign over us for all eternity. When the goodness of God and the power of God will be on full display. And we won't need to question any longer. See, here's the truth. Because Jesus is our true priest king, you and I don't have to be selfish in this world. Doesn't it feel like Abram kind of just moves in and out of his interactions with the world unaffected? Abram is there in the midst of this massive little war that's going on. And he inserts himself when he chooses to, and he pulls himself out when he chooses to. It's like he wears this invisible coat where he is just not affected by anything going on in the world. The promise of God has so sheltered him, so uh, grabbed him, that he doesn't have to cling to anything any longer. Galatians says this, Paul writes, he says, I boast in nothing but the cross through which I have been crucified to the world and the world has been crucified to me. There's this way of going about life after we've experienced new life in Christ that we no longer have to be affected by the things of the world. We no longer have to cling to them. We no longer have to be selfish. See, because of the resurrection of Jesus, because we have a, a true priest king, we don't have to be self-asserting. We don't have to be self-preserving. We can rest in the promise of God because our priest king Jesus sits at the right hand of God and intercedes on our behalf. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. See, for you and I this morning, we just have this, this question that we ask is, is, who needs the riches of Sodom when you could have wine and bread with God's appointed priest king? Which of us needs the, the riches, the abundance of the city of Sodom when we can sit down and enjoy bread and wine with our God? You know, it's not lost on me that, that Jesus himself celebrated his last supper with his disciples with bread and wine. That he promises us someday that we ourselves will sit and dine with him anew in his kingdom as we eat bread and drink wine. It will be those who participate with God, who sit across from God, and we enjoy his presence for eternity. I love what Abram says in, in chapter 14, verse 22. I've lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. It's as if to say, I don't need your riches. My God possesses heaven and earth. And it leaves us with a question this morning, would you trade in all of the world's riches for a bit of bread and a sip of wine with God's chosen priest king, Jesus Christ? I pray that we might be a people who bypass the, what the world offers, that we might see the hook inside the bait, and that we might be those who cling to the rich presence of God in Christ. I pray for that this morning. God, we do. We pray that you would commune with us. 
Jesus, you've told us that, that when we abide in you, we bear much fruit. So God, I thank you that we can bear fruit as we commune, commune with you, as we abide with you. So Lord, remind us of the sweetness of abiding with you. Give us a taste of your presence, and your goodness, and your mercy, and your love, so that we can set aside all that the world has to offer. Let us cling to your goodness and mercy in Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.